0: Misery loves, misery loves company. That's where it comes from. Misery loves company. And, and it just it sent a chill down my spine the first time I read it. Like this whole thing. Like why does the devil want to entice people? Because misery loves company. A legalistic framework that is based on misery and this kind of God out to get you can be very evangelistic. You can be recruiting people to that with a lot of zeal, right? Jesus said the Pharisees were very evangelistic. All right, good to be with everyone here this evening, this afternoon. So, we are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. And today we are starting at chapter 12. So, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. "'Nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. "'Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath "'the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath "'and are blameless? "'Yet I say to you that in this place "'there is one greater than the temple. "'But if you had known what this means, "'I desire mercy and not sacrifice, "'you would not have condemned the guiltless.'" For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, as we read this interaction between Jesus and his, uh, his enemies, his opponents uh, in, in the Pharisees, I pray that you would help us to understand better Jesus' role, his authority, and help us to better understand the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament, the role of Sabbath, and then also how we are to not fall into the same traps that the Pharisees fell into. Help us to be humble and to recognize that the Pharisees were were very sincere, very earnest in their beliefs, and yet were sincerely wrong. They were blinded by by their zeal. May we not be... So blinded, but may we instead have our eyes opened by the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last time, which was two weeks ago, we looked at that very famous passage where Jesus asks people to come to him, all you who are, are weary and heavy laden, and he would give <laughs> rest. And we talked about how there's two groups of people who are weary and And heavy laden, hopefully you remember the two groups of people. So we looked at several passages on this, but one group of of people are those who are weary because of sin, because of bad choices that they've made. Another group of of people are weary because of the burden of this huge system of law that is this almost impossible system to, to follow and to flourish under. And so so Jesus in that passage says, okay, you come to me and I'm going to give you a kind yoke. Not a a heavy, difficult yoke, but a kind yoke. And now we're going to see what this yoke actually looks like here in this passage. And so it's not surprising that rest was, was what we just looked at in the previous chapter. And now we transition into Sabbath. And in fact, there's going to be two stories about the Sabbath Here in chapter 12. So a very logical connection. Okay. So in verse 1, we see that Jesus' disciples were hungry and they began to pick and eat grain. Now, it's very, very easy to pass over this quickly. But I don't want us to do this. Eating raw grain is very unpleasant. Okay. It's, It's not seasoned. It's not cooked. It's... Pretty terrible. Okay, so I, I actually brought here today just a little bit of whole wheat flour. <clears throat> here, it's uh, just straight up whole wheat flour. Anybody want to? All right, go for it. You can you can taste it for us and tell us tell us what it tastes like. <laughs> like <laughs> it tastes like sand but it sticks to your mouth like peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> it tastes like sand but it sticks to your mouth like peanut butter alright there we go straight from the mouth of someone who has consumed something like a raw grain actually I think this would have been a little bit better because at least this is smoothened out and not as sharp <clears throat> So what it says is that the disciples must have been very, very hungry to be plucking raw grain. This is unusual that someone would do this. And one of the things that we, we just read over these passages too quickly, too often, and we don't pay attention to it, but the early church comments on this. And the early church, Chrysostom in particular, says, wow, they must have been like at the brink of starvation if they were driven to be eating raw grain that they're just picking there at the at the at the side of the path now you you might ask okay is this legal are you allowed to just do this and in fact there's a we won't turn to this but in Deuteronomy 23 25 it says when you come into your neighbor's standing grain you may pluck the heads with your hand but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain so it's at least legal what they're doing according to Old Testament law but very unpleasant and this is taken in the early church as a statement of how destitute and how hard of a life Jesus the disciples have. He, Jesus has already said things like, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. They're apparently going for long periods of time without eating satisfying, nutritious meals, which is driving them to, to pluck and eat this raw grain. Okay, so I want us to hold that, right? Again, it's very easy to read these passages quickly and not put ourselves in the situation and really appreciate what's going on. So they're, they're extremely, extremely famished at this point. And the Pharisees, in verse 2, they make an accusation. They say, all right, you all, this is not lawful. You're not allowed to, to do this on the Sabbath, in fact, the Old Testament is, is generally quite sparse on specifics about Sabbath. Okay, so like the overall principle is don't work on the Sabbath. That's very clear. It says that in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy. There's a handful of examples that are given. So for example, we know from the book of Numbers that someone is, they're actually they're killed because they, they pick up sticks. So that apparently qualifies there. In Exodus, it says they can't kindle a fire. Uh, in, in Nehemiah, it talks about them not buying and selling. Th- there's not a lot, though. There's like maybe half a dozen specifics that are there. <coughs> and, and I think half a dozen is probably close to the right number of specifics that are listed there. So I'll read you... Uh, One line from the Mishnah, hopefully you know what the Mishnah is. The Mishnah is a document of early Judaism. It's after Jesus, but it, it represents this collection of laws that at least some of them probably are reflective of first century Judaism. And here's what the Mishnah says about the rules about Sabbath. The rules about Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For the scripture thereon is scanty while the rules we make are many. Very interesting. So they're saying that like we have these, this mountainous structure that's hanging by a hair, right? Even, even the, the Jews were aware that the scripture, scriptural precedent was, was very limited there. So let's keep that in mind. Old Testament is very sparse. The, the Jews made it very elaborate. <coughs> All right, so... I'm going to read you a quote from David Brousseau. He, he says it really well. and This is from his commentary on Matthew. He says, Nevertheless, so despite the sparsity of statements there, the Pharisees imagined they had the authority to make precise definitions of work, even though God made none. In effect, they were making themselves lords of the Sabbath. Very interesting. He's saying there's like very little detail there but the Pharisees are making themselves lords of the Sabbath. Okay, so the stage is set now between these lords of the Sabbath, the Pharisees and their community with Jesus. And one of the main questions in the story is who really has the right to inter- to interpret Sabbath observance? Is it the Jewish leaders or is it Jesus? Okay, So, what what Jesus does here in terms of structure is he gives us two analogies, one principle, and one pronouncement. Okay? Two analogies, one principle, and one pronouncement. So, we're going to walk through this, and then I'm going to give you four applications. Okay. So, what's the first analogy? (coughs) So, sorry. So, the first analogy is David and the showbread. Okay? So, a lot of us know what the showbread are, right? Do we know what the showbread is? showbread is... Are these these loaves that were baked, these 12 loaves that were baked every Sunday, or sorry, every Saturday? And they were placed on this table on the on the right side of the tabernacle when you enter it. And basically David is on the run. He's running for his life. And it says that he's hungry. Okay, so the common word there is hunger, right? David's men are hungry. Jesus' men, Jesus' disciples are hungry. And the high priest says, Okay, eat this bread there. And what is the purpose of this? Jesus is basically saying, Okay, in times of great need, you all agree that David is not some horrible sinner. You all agree that David, it was okay for him to eat the showbread under these dire situations. And he's he's then saying why why can't we do that why can't we follow in this his his second analogy his second scriptural illustration comes from the priests in the temple so as it turns out the priests even on the sabbath were very active they were they weren't just resting they were preparing meat and doing work okay so in numbers 28 verses 9 to 10 it says And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. Okay, so did you catch that? They have to offer on the Sabbath two lambs, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour with the drink offering every single Sabbath. Okay, and so Jesus is basically saying, hey, everyone, hello, the priests are working every Sabbath. Now, Jesus is going to anticipate the objection, which is that, well, yeah, you're not, you're not the priests, and you're not working in the temple. And so Jesus makes an astonishing statement here. I hope you are astonished by this. Verse 6. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Okay, so Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he's basically saying, if the priests of the Old Testament were allowed to work in the temple and allowed to perform these functions, there's something, someone greater than temple here. Can the attendants, can the servants of this one greater than a temple not similarly be exempt from accusation in the course of their, in this case, plucking the heads of grain, okay? So everyone get that logic? Hopefully it's clear, right? Saying the priests were exempt from a Sabbath prohibition, so the disciples serving something greater than the temple, the kingdom of God, Jesus, should also be exempt, okay? It's a brilliant argument if if you stitch it all together. Okay, so then, because, so those are the two scriptural illustrations. So then what does Jesus do? Jesus then says, okay, now I want to give you a principle. And this, this I think, is one of Jesus' favorite verses. We've already seen him quote this once before. What does Jesus do? He quotes from Hosea 6.6, 6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. <clears throat> we'll come back to the previous citation in a little bit here. So sacrifice refers to the ceremonial parts of the law, right? We know that the Torah has this very extensive specification of the ceremonial parts of the law. But for Jesus, sacrifice is subordinated by mercy. This is very important. That when Jesus looks at at the whole of the Torah, and, and we've seen this before and we'll see it again, Jesus looks at Torah through this lens of mercy and he sees sacrifice not superior to mercy, but subordinated by mercy. Okay, we need just a tiny, tiny bit of information about this word mercy. I know know a lot of you know this already, but it bears repeating. I, I gave a lot longer treatment of this in my sermon on the Beatitudes on mercy, but eleos is the Greek word. It's a common word. And it doesn't just mean withholding punishment. In general, when we use the word in English today, we think, like, show mercy to this guy. Like, he, he's, he's having a rough time. You know, just be, don't, don't, don't be so strict with him. <clears throat> but the word "eleos" or mercy in the Bible is much more than that, it includes that, certainly. It's, it's much closer to something like kindness or compassion uh, it's the word that Jesus uses to describe the Good Samaritan. So when the Good Samaritan takes the man who's beaten up, laying by the side of the road, and cleans his wounds, and puts him on the donkey, and takes him to the, to the inn, that is showing mercy to this man. Okay, so he's not withholding punishment. He's being kind to him. It is a, commonly in the Septuagint, it translates the word chesed there, which, depending on your English translation, Hesed is rendered as steadfast love or loving kindness. King James often uses mercy there. So it's a a positive virtue here. It's, It's kindness, it's compassion, it's care, it's loving kindness, whatever those words helps you. Okay, finally, the principle that he, or sorry, the pronouncement. The pronouncement is the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, verse eight. This is an amazing statement to make. I mean, for anyone who is a Jew to be walking around saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, that's, that's as near to blasphemy as statements come. This institution that was so central to Judaism, Jesus is saying, I'm Lord over that. By calling himself Lord of the Sabbath, He's undermining the entire scribal industry. This whole machine that has created this mountain of rules that's hanging by a thread, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of that institution. Okay, so I'm gonna give you four applications now. We've done a high-level take on this passage. Now I want us to go deeper and look at four specific applications. Okay, so the first one is that we should marvel at Jesus' authority. We should marvel at Jesus' authority. Okay, so Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's greatest institutions. Okay, so here he's saying Lord of the Sabbath. And I think everyone would agree that even to this day, when you think about Judaism, you think about Sabbath, right? Uh, <clears throat> faithful Jews today, I mean, that is, that to be a Jew is to keep Sabbath. He's the true interpreter of Torah, We've seen all kinds of statements, like, you've heard that it was said, this, quoting from Torah, but I say to you, this. And here he's demonstrating that specifically over Sabbath rules. He's greater than temple, so he claims in this. So, Lord of the Sabbath, true interpreter of Torah, greater than temple. We saw in Matthew 7 that he's the one who presides over Judgment Day. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, Uh, but... Only the one who does the will of my Father is the one whom Jesus receives there. And then we saw in Matthew 11 that only the Son knows the Father. Only Jesus knows the Father. These are astonishing statements that no sane person that I'm aware of in history has ever made. You study Muhammad, you study Joseph Smith, you study the founder of every religious movement out there, at least all the ones who seem sane, I'm not aware of anyone who has made statements of this kind of strength. And so much of Matthew is this, is this series of statements that is, is ratifying and it is, it, is, it is deepening our understanding of Jesus' authority. And I've said this many times, I'll say it again. One's discipleship is proportional to one's convictions about authority. Discipleship and authority are closely bound up together what would happen if you really believed that Jesus had authority over your time? What would happen? What would happen if you really believed that Jesus had authority over your tongue? What would happen if you really believed that Jesus had authority over your money? What would you what would happen if you really believe that Jesus had authority over your laptop? What would that, what would that change about the way that you, you browse or your phone? What what would really happen if Jesus had authority? If you believe that Jesus really had authority over your phone or your clothing, the list goes on and on. Moment by moment, What our lives are really about is we're expressing authority statements with our action, right? That's basically what your life is. It's a series of of expressions of authority statements. And we're going to see in Matthew, well, we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone's astonished at Jesus's authority. We saw in Matthew 8 and 9, this, this cluster of three by three claims of authority that Jesus makes. And then, of course, in Matthew 28, it ends with all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay, so my first point was that we should marvel at Jesus' authority. Second point, remember that God is for our good, not for our misery. Okay, so much of what Jesus is doing in Matthew is retrieving out the original intent of the law. Right, So when he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, okay, this is really where it was driving at. I'm, I'm finishing it. I'm fulfilling it. I'm taking it to the final destination that the law was actually pointing to. And, of course, to do that, it's really, there's a debate happening here between Jesus and the Pharisees about God's priorities. So often, People believe, consciously or subconsciously, that God is a killjoy. That he's anti, you're, you're having fun and enjoying life. And there have, <clears throat> there have been statements made where, uh, I've heard a variety of these over the years, people will say things like that, that forms of Christianity are, are based on this haunting feeling that somewhere, somebody might be having fun. And it 's just, oh, we can't stand that right uh, and and really it's it's deep, 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 deep in our hearts to have god's character maligned. Religious systems tend to do this they they take things that are intended for our good and for our joy, and somehow we believe that they're actually a straitjacket somehow we believe that they're for our harm, and for just making our lives miserable. When, I I think I might have mentioned this before, but when I was in school, I still remember we played this a lot in fifth grade in in public school. People would come up to you and they would say, what's your name? Finney. Why? Because my parents named me after Charles Finney. How come? Well, he was this person who did, did da 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 Why? They fill in that, how come? And you just you, you go back and forth between why and how come, and you, you do this like 30 times until the person just like gets exhausted and they're ready to move on. If you were to do that with, with Christianity and say, why are you a Christian? And to do the why, how come, why, how come, uh, I always give the same answer. The rock bottom answer underneath all of it is joy. For the joy set before him, Jesus despised the cross, uh, despised the cross <clears throat> sorry, despised the shame and and uh, endured the cross, yeah, endured the cross, despised the shame, thank you, Hebrews 12, that joy is this rock-bottom reason of why we're doing all that we're doing. You know, it's very easy to lose sight of the why sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes... We can get so wrapped up in the what and the how, we forget the why. You know, there's a, there's a reason that that famous Simon Sinek talk went viral. Some of you have heard that talk where he's, it's all about the, it's a great, it's worth watching. It's, uh, it's about the value of the why. The why of true Christianity helps us with the what and the how, and Jesus ties it back to mercy or kindness, depending on your translation. If you have that inside of you, it changes everything. I'm convinced that so much of what legalism is, is it's rooted in this concept that God is out to get you. Like, okay, yeah, there's, there's a lot of focus on externals and all that, but like, what's, what's underneath that? Like, what's behind all that? It's a, it's a notion of who God is. It's a notion that God is somehow out to get you. And if you have that, if you have this sort of dread and this, this sense of God's antipathy, his, his against you nature, <coughs> that, is, that, that actually is something that can be motivating even for evangelism, as strange as that might sound. I, I remember one of the few books I remember from high school, about 30 years ago for me now, I was reading I still, uh, so, so well, there's a play called Dr. Faustus. Has anybody read Dr. Faustus? You've read it. Christopher Marlowe. Fascinating book. And so in this book, there's this doctor, Dr. Faustus, who basically gets bored. He's he's this bright individual. He gets bored. And he decides that he wants to explore the realm of magic. And an angel comes to him and says, don't do it. If you go down this path of exploring magic, it's going to ruin you. He ignores this angel and he calls these two magicians to him. And one thing leads to another and he he eventually calls on the devil and he signs in his blood that he will get these great powers for 24 years in exchange for the the devil at the end of the 24 years being able to take him body and soul into hell. (coughs) And it's a, it's a gripping final scene, I remember it so well, where, where we have Dr. Faustus, his 24 years are run up, and the, the demons and the devil are ready to claim him after 24 years. And he's, he, he's hoping to get out of it. And, and then in the scene that, again, it's so beautifully written, it's beautiful English, it's an old play, he asks the, the, the demons and the devils, Why? Like, why do you want me? What, what is all this about? Anybody remember the line? Misery loves company. Misery loves company. That's where it comes from. Misery loves company. And, and it just, it sent a chill down my spine the first time I read it. Like, this whole thing, like, why does the devil want to entice people? Because misery loves company. A legalistic framework that is based on misery and this kind of God out to get you can be very evangelistic. You can be recruiting people to that with a lot of zeal, right? Jesus said the Pharisees were very evangelistic. So much of the good news of the gospel is good news about God's character and that there are many, 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 many attempts to defame God's character and to take his goodness and his mercy out of the picture But right at the heart of the good news of the gospel is the message that God is for us, not against us. Okay, my third point is that devotion to man-made rules can replace devotion to Jesus. Devotion to man-made rules can replace devotion to Jesus. Okay, so I, I spent some time when I was preparing this, studying this portions of the Mishnah. I didn't go through all of it, but portions of the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, it gives thirty-nine things you can't do on the Sabbath. I'm going to read you this list. This is from ou.org. Ou.org is OrthodoxUnion.org. It's a Jewish website. It goes through all thirty-nine of them, but just it'll give you a flavor: uh, carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing. That was like dyeing with like ink or uh, yeah, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, marking for every one of those if you're interested go to ou.org and they'll give you like a couple paragraphs about what that means and what the specific limits are Uh, ranging from you you definitely can't carry like your wallet outside of your house that would be considered violating the carrying prohibition it's very complex, very elaborate when I was the first year in medical school I lived in the dorms for, for one year the med school that I went to had a lot of Jewish people in it and so in the dorms, there were a lot of Jewish people, and there was one young lady, I remember her very well, she was an Orthodox Jew, and she would not turn lights on or off in her, in her room, and so she would call other people <laughs> to do it, uh, me and other people. She would say, uh, I think I'm ready to go to bed. Would someone come and turn my lights off? And um, she would ask for people to like turn on like, lights in the kitchen or turn on ovens for her. She couldn't do any of those things. So I and many others would do that for me. And it always felt really weird. It's like, wait, you can't do this, but you want me to do it for you? It's like, what is this? And it just, it was this legalistic tangle that she was in. And I don't know how thoughtful she was about it, but it was how she lived. It, it reminds me of the word bureaucracy, right? So we, we use that word bureaucracy sometimes, right? So what is bureaucracy? A bureau is a desk. It's the French word for desk. Kratos in Greek means power. So a bureaucracy is the power of the desk. And it's just like somebody who's just like cranking out rule after rule. And we've we've all interacted with bureaucracies at one level. And they're like, they're kind of miserable, right? Because you're like, just, I, I don't want to jump through this hoop and that hoop, and this contradicts this and that. And I just care about getting over here. Why, why do I have to do all these different, different steps? <clears throat> There's one person who has commented, he's a very international traveler, and he's commented that the smaller and the, the less significant a nation is, the more elaborate their uniforms and costumes are. And, and basically his thesis is that it's like they feel this deficiency because they're like this tiny little nation, and so they want to fill that void, With pageantry and all of this elaborate, and you know, so you'll visit this tiny nation with like nobody there, and like, what is this? That is, I think, a good illustration for the principle that I want to illustrate here, which is that it is very easy to substitute a real relationship with God with just a bunch of rules, right? And you can fill that void with. A very complex, rich set of of rules that go in all these different directions and and yet be hollow. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.16, listen to this verse in, in the light of what we just read. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he's saying there's this whole realm of things that are just, he mentioned Sabbaths in this, Sabbaths and new moons and festivals. They're just shadows. They're they're not the real thing. And it's easy to be consumed with the shadow and to miss the substance, isn't it? This is why we have to be very, very careful about extra-biblical rules. In the book that I wrote in 2013, I have a couple chapters on this about why we have to be so cautious about extra-biblical rules. It's very, very challenging. Certainly by Jesus' day, the temple had become so much about exclusion and and isolation and separation of the Jews from the Gentiles. And Jesus is, we're going to see in chapter 12, the the opposition between Jesus and the Pharisees is going to accelerate. They're going to become even more opposed. And Jesus is going to be speaking against temple and even talking about its destruction. I want to say here before going going too too much further is that I recognize very well that so much of the history of the church is this is this kind of swinging overreaction on on many sides here, and everyone thinks that they're the balanced ones, uh, but. There, there is a fine line, but a real line that exists between liberty and license, right? So liberty is enjoying the freedoms that we have in Jesus. License is, is using liberty as cover to indulge our flesh. It's a very, very uh, fine line there that often is crossed, how how do we how do we do this right? You know we we have to be careful because there are many places that devotion to Jesus turns into license, and we all know Jesus' famous line in John: "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." Okay, so there's there's a false tension, there's a false dichotomy between obeying Jesus and loving Jesus. That's like that's totally false, but we have to also acknowledge that. In, in a devotion in a, in a sincerity to want to obey the commands it can become something ugly and, and messy and exclusionary there's a lot to be said on this but I'll just say here that devotion to Jesus is creative it's overflowing it's spontaneous it does more than what's expected uh, there's a lot of a lot we can explore on this point here I hope we can talk about it more Alright, I'll go to my final point here, and, and then we'll close. Okay, my fourth and final point is that mercy, or kindness, should be our lens and goal, not criticism. Okay, so maybe saying that in other, in other ways. Instead of criticism, mercy should be our lens and goal. Okay, so Jesus has quoted Hosea 6.6 once before. Anybody remember the context of that, where we saw it before? Not sure. Book of Matthew. Yeah, it was in the Book of Matthew. True. Is there a for the yeah, so it was actually when when Jesus was eating at Matthew's house with tax collectors and sinners, and he gets criticized for eating with this group of people. This is in Matthew chapter nine, and. The Pharisees and the scribes, they look at this and they think, Jesus, what is wrong with you? Don't you see how messed up all these people are? Can't you see? They're sinning in this way and that way and this way and that way. And they need to be rebuked. They clearly need to be be rebuked. And what are you doing? You're sitting there having a grand old time with them, eating and talking and having a festive time. What is wrong with you? And then Jesus rebukes them and says, you don't understand the heart of Torah, which is, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, so I think we can safely say that in general, religions as a whole, but certainly Christianity, have, for good reason, have a reputation of, of becoming kind of judgmental. And, and I realize some of that is unavoidable and some of it you can't get away from. But, but when we think about the witch trials, we think about the Crusades, we think about all the wars, we think about terrorism, right, it's like, it's not an unreasonable charge that people would say, like, do I really wanna become religious and get involved in all of this, these conflicts of, over the centuries? One of, one of the quotes that I just, I absolutely love this quote, it's, it's on one of, my, one of my lists to read every week, it's from Jonathan Swift. I want, I want you to write this down because it's such a powerful quote. It's an old, it's an old quote, but it's, it's worth memorizing this. It's not, it's not in scripture, but it's pretty near scriptural bar in terms of inspiration. Okay, so Jonathan Swift says, We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Okay, very profound idea. Did you catch that? We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Okay, that is, I mean, wow, that is a stunning, like, like just gripping uh, insight that, he ha- that he's had here. And he's right, he's right. The vast majority of humanity, the vast majority of religious folk over the years, you learn a little bit of truth, you get excited and you want to like, you want to draw lines, you want to look, look down on folks, you want to do this. This is why, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very careful to embed in the beginning of chapter 7, don't judge, don't be a hypocrite, you're going you're gonna to have this big big plank sticking out of your eye, you're going to try to get a speck out of somebody else's eye. He embeds that in the Sermon on the Mount because he realizes that, that the sermon has power if gone rogue. If, if handled inappropriately, to be that. Okay, so so we have to then ask ourselves in in very soul searching ways: Are we merciful people? Are we kind people? Are we exhibiting steadfast love, or veering instead towards criticism and and? judgmentalism that Jesus specifically rebukes in Matthew 7, okay? So as I've mentioned many times before, in, in so, many, so much of Matthew, we get to see the Sermon on the Mount play itself out here. And what, what's happening is here is a great example of where the Pharisees got this big plank in their eye, and they're criticizing people who have, Jesus says they're actually blameless here. We get to see this in, in real life play out in a story. And a true story. I want to I want to just wrap up here now, just with again grounding us in God's character. So much of Scripture, if you if you really get down underneath it and ask, okay, like what what explains one behavior versus another? What explains what what's really going on? It really is a view at core of God and his character. You know, I've, I've, I've posed this, this question uh, many times, and I've read surveys on this, that most people actually believe in their private anonymous moments that if you ask them, like, what does God really think of you? The, the number one thing that people say is disappointed. That's the number one thing that people say, like, if you get them alone, what does God really think of you? He's disappointed in me. If that is your overriding belief of what you think God thinks of you and looks at you is of uh, disappointment, you're going to live a very difficult Christian life. It's going to be a roller coaster of, of license, of, of criticizing, of faltering, of, of just being ineffective. Instead, our overriding understanding of God should be that of mercy, of kindness, chesed, eleos. So I'll read you a quote here from an author, uh, same as Paul Tripp, who talks about just thinking about God's mercies. You know, there's different songs about the mercies of God are new every morning, right? We, we sing these songs, great songs. And he says this, one of the stunning realities of the Christian life is that in a world where everything is in some state of decay, God's mercies never grow old. They never run out. They never are ill-timed. They never dry up. They never grow weak. They never get weary. They never fail to meet the need. They never disappoint. They never ever fail because they really are new every morning. Form fitted for the challenges, disappointments, sufferings, temptations, and struggles with sin within and without are the mercies... Steadfast love, kindness of our Lord. Sometimes they are awe-inspiring mercies, rebuking mercies, strengthening mercies, hope-giving mercies, heart-exposing mercies, rescuing mercies, transforming mercies, forgiving mercies, provision-making mercies, uncomfortable mercies, glory-revealing mercies, truth-illumining mercies, courage-giving mercies. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Subordinates his interpretation of Torah to that principle. May it be so with us. Let's close in prayer. Father, forgive us for how we have succumbed and given ourselves over at at different times and different ways to, to believing that you are out to get us, that you are a God who is, is, is bent on, on, on misery and criticism and carping. Father, forgive us for this, help us to believe as Jesus so passionately teaches here and and other, way, and other places that Father, you are a good and loving and kind Father who your overriding emotion to us is not disappointment but longing and delight, and, and joy. I pray, Father, we'd believe that, and out of the overflow of that, to read scripture through that lens, with that goal of, of seeing mercy as, as the, the lens of seeing Elios and Chesed as our, as our framework for interpreting the Torah. I pray, Father, that we would not be critical, but we would be known as merciful people. I pray that everybody in this room here would have a heart-searching exercise to ask themselves, to ask others, am I merciful, am I kind, am I a giver, am I, am I a person who's out to, to find and encourage people or to rebuke and to criticize. May we be effective in this. May we be those who, who embody Jesus' principle and teaching in this very important passage. We pray these things in Jesus' name.